my mom paid the doctor a hundred dollars. He gave my biological father 35 bucks. And for that small amount of money, my entire identity was just erased. Hello, you are listening to NPE Stories. This is a podcast where NPEs can share their story. I'm your host, Lily, and I found out I was an NPE through an ancestry DNA test that changed my life forever. NPE is a term that stands for not parent expected or non-paternal event. This means that one or more of our parents are not who we believe them to be. NPE Stories is a podcast where NPEs can share their story of what their original family was like, how they found out they were an NPE, and what their journey has been like since the day they found out. Hi, Cassandra. Hi, Lily. Thank you so much for having me on here. Thank you for dealing with me and the sound issues today. <laughs> you've, you've been <laughs> Thank so- you for your patience. <laughs> Thank you for your patience. My goodness. <laughs> this, okay, this is going to work. You don't have a delay and, and I can hear you and we're just going to keep going. Okay, good. <laughs> okay. So, um, like I was saying earlier, and I may be wrong because I've done 64 episodes, but I believe you are my first official donor conceived sto- story. Uh, wow. Actually, that's I'm not using the proper term, am I? I? I believe I've just recently learned I should say, is it assisted conception? Do you prefer that? Um, there are so many different terms and I don't know if there's a consensus among, among us, what, what we prefer. Um, a lot of people don't like the term donor conceived because the, the word donor is really a misnomer. Um, especially in the United States, they are, they're paid. Um, they're not really donating anything. And also the term in itself, even if it is an altruistic donation without payment, it, it really dehumanizes that, that part of us. Um, so there, there is a feeling amongst, amongst our community that that's not really the right word for us. Um, but a lot of us do identify as donor conceived people, um, because it's, it's what's understood currently. Um, so there, there is a lot of talk about trying to find a better, a better term, whether it be like you said, um, you know, assisted reproductive technology. So assisted reproduction or, um, preconception adoption is another one I've heard, um, to kind of illustrate kind of how the, the separation is done preconception, but it's, it's transactional like an adoption is. So yeah, there are, there are a lot of terms and a lot of ethical discussions around what, what would be the best term for us. But, but yeah, currently in this country, donor conceived people is kind of what we've used to congregate, to kind of make a community for ourselves and to identify each other as, you know, by the method of, of our conception. Okay. And so is that when I see the acronym DCP, does that mean donor conceived peoples? Yes. Yes. Got it. Okay. I had someone ask me if I was going to have a DCP on my podcast soon. And I was kind of, I kind of guessed on that one, but now this makes sense. And 
Yeah. And what you just said, I just have to repeat it because this is, this was new to me a few months ago. Donor conceived is not, it's, it can't, it's not necessarily the right term because um, although it can happen, these are not, eggs and sperm are not donated. Not usually they are, this is a paid, this was a, a transaction of some sort, usually. Right. Right. Yes. Yes. And I, just hard to wrap my brain around. I'm just, I'm, and you cor- correct me today with the things I, I say wrong. I'm still trying to educate myself on this, but in children's rights and, and all of this along with assisted reproduction, but um, thank, you. Ugh, thank you for being willing to talk about this today. Oh, absolutely. It adds another, another ethical layer onto the NPE um already what, what goes on with NPEs and the feelings behind it, you know, it really adds this other layer of discussion to it that a lot of NPEs don't, don't understand. And it's, it's more akin to adoption. So this, this, that aspect of our stories, generally we can discuss more openly with adoptees. Yeah, I get it. I get it. And, and that is another, yeah, that's another group of people that I really I hope to hear more from more voices as well on this podcast. Do you remember though that the first time we were introduced to each other or how we met was we were both on the same documentary, the NBC New York web documentary from was I don't know, might have been 2020, early 2020. Yeah, I, it was. I believe it was it was February, I think, because I remember telling Paisy that we had our Christmas tree up until my daughter's birthday, which was in, in the, at the end of February. And so, yeah, I think it was like right before the pandemic hit. And I think I emailed her, you know, a few weeks after it came out just to thank her again and say, wow, you really did that at the right time because had it been a few weeks later, all we heard about was COVID-19, you know? Exactly. That's what I was going to say. Like that came out. Um, and then all of a sudden the news was just overwhelmed with COVID. And I'm going to put a link to the documentary that the web documentary that you were on. I was on someone else was on. I forget her name right now. Um, yeah. My friend Amber um, is also donor conceived. And yeah, it? she's fantastic. And, and yes. And, and when I saw that there was another person and I, I didn't recognize her immediately, I was like, wait, I have to find out who this person is. And, and then when I, I saw that you, you did the podcast and I you just looked like such a wonderful person. And I was just so, so thrilled to, to connect with you. Oh, same. I'm so glad I've connected with you. For people listening, they're going to recognize Cassandra if you are on any of the online forums. I've seen you in webinars. You are on podcasts. I've seen you do guest blog posts and you're writing about it and you're just very active with the NPE and the DCP community. And um, and you just know a lot. You know so much more than I do ethically about <laughs> <laughs> all of this. But I wanted to give you, we have less than an hour. So I want to, I want to give you the space today. I just want to hear your story and, and anything you want to share about today. Um, so we are recording, but I don't really know your full background other than what I saw in the documentary about you. So if you could kind of start at the beginning and take it any, any way you want to and feel comfortable with. Absolutely. So um Growing up, you know, my my mother is uh, first generation Italian American. Um, 
And my dad is super American, um, very, very long history in America. That's what um, Italians would call American, just really, really American. You know, his, his family tree descended from, you know, early colonial settlers, um, the early Dutch settlers of, of New York when it was New Amsterdam. Um, so I always really connected with my mom's family because everybody was really off the boat. It was very much of a, um, uh, a family is everything, um, childhood. And, um, there was, I was just immersed kind of in that, in that Italian American culture. And I kind of was always wondering what, what my dad was. Um, and it's hard to, to kind of look back on my childhood and realize I was always kind of asking questions about that, but because, you know, my dad's family had been in this country for so long, there really wasn't a lot of information. He'd just be like, I don't know something about, you know, you know, my last name is an English name. So, you know, English or Dutch, you know, my grandmother knew something about Dutch, um, but there was really no information. And so I really was always kind of looking for that kind of cultural connection on that side. So when I got old enough, I actually started doing, you know, genealogy. Um, and I talked to one of my dad's cousins who had done genealogy and started kind of looking um, really on both sides of my family for ways to, to connect. And um, with my mom's side, it looked like, um, you know, trips to Italy and connecting with, with family in Italy and keeping in touch with with my family there, especially after my grandparents passed. Um, and on my dad's side, it looked like um, kind of tracing the family tree back generations and also trying to find some of his cousins. Um, he didn't, didn't really have a big, a big family. So um, trying to find some more distant cousins of his who I did, did end up connecting with. And so there was always kind of a theme of, of looking for, for family connection, um, in my childhood. Um, and that was part of what spurred the, the DNA test really, um, was interest in finding out a little bit more, especially about my dad's side, knowing that it was just kind of this hodgepodge of, of American settlers. Um, so I, took the opportunity when I found that 23andMe was doing a research study on depression and bipolar disorder. Um, I'd really had wanted to do these tests for a while, but I was like, a you know, poor, out of college, just married, you know. Um, so when I found this test for free, it was absolutely fantastic. And I qualified for it. I had a, a history of depression, as did my dad. Um, so, you know, figuring it was genetic turns out my biological father as well, but you know, that's later. <laughs> um, so I, I did this test and I did this 23 and me test fit in the tube and sent it off. And, um, in September of 2017, I got my results. I was laying in bed about to go to sleep, checking my email one more time. And I got the email from 23andMe. And when I opened up the email, um, the first thing that popped out on my pie chart was that I was, you know, 49% Ashkenazi Jewish. So um, that was unexpected. That wow. was nowhere, nowhere in what I had, what I knew about my family. Um, immediately, 
my my first thought being um, maybe my Italian grandparents were were Jewish. Um, you know, my my grandfather. You know, when they immigrated here, they lived in Brooklyn, and there was a big a lot of camaraderie between Italian and Jewish immigrants there. And people often mistook my grandfather for, for a Jewish man and, you know, whatever, I'm trying to make sense of this. So I'm trying to figure out if maybe my mother's side was, was really ethnically Jewish and I'm sending screenshots to friends and, and trying to figure this out. And, and really, you know, it, it took me several hours, um, and conversations with friends to to realize that um, that's not what the situation was at all. You know, I, I was not, uh, you know, I was pulling at strings trying to say my, you know, my dad had a grandmother who had a, a German last name. Maybe she was really German Jewish and trying to pull all put all these pieces together to to add up to fifty percent and. As as we all kind of know now, if you if you end up as fifty percent something, it's 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 probably that one of your parents is a hundred percent something, you know. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, it, you know, about four o'clock in the morning, one of my friends said to me, "She's like Cassandra. She's like you have a, a an English last name. She's like you know your dad has has significant British ancestry. You're zero percent British." And I was like, that's, that's when it, it really hit me that I was looking at 50% Jewish and the other half was really all, it was, it was a mix of Italian and Middle East and a little bit of, you know, scatterings around Europe, but it was, it was consistent with 50% Italian. And that's when it really hit me that I was looking at 50, 50 and that, um, something was, was very, very wrong with my story. Um, and my friend suggested I look at my, my matches, um, which I had done, but I had a half sister match and that just didn't make sense. You know, maybe it was, my dad had a kid prior to, to us and, you know, but, um, she was also 50% Jewish. And so the questions really, um, really started compounding at that point. And I, I sent my mom a message to, to please, uh, come over. She was coming over that morning to watch my daughter, um, while I had an appointment. And, um, so I, I asked her if she could come over a little earlier and, um, so that we could talk about this. (laughs) So that was the, uh, that was the, the, uh, leading up to the, to the moment of discovery. I think as soon as the customer service line opened up at 23andMe, I called also to ask if there was any chance that the test had been, you know, mixed up or anything like that. And, and the woman assured me that they have so many safeguards in place that this was, that was not possible. You know, that was my, that was my test. And I said, I don't know, it, it, it would almost seem like my father's not my father. And that just, that just doesn't make sense. I know he is, you know? And, uh, so, so I had, I had to speak with my mom in order to, to find the truth of, of what was going on. My gosh, how shocking. Uh, I can't even imagine looking at DNA matches and seeing nearly 50% Ashkenazi Jew. Jewish. Yes. I think you, okay. <laughs> 
So you're like 50% Jewish, 50% Italian, approximately, with other stuff yes. mixed in. Yeah. Okay, so they, what did they you... Since, they've since revised it. Now it's at 50%, you know? <laughs> okay. Oh, my gosh. So um, so how did it go speaking with your mom? Um, so my mom knew what was coming. Uh, first of all, she had actually watched me spit into the tube. And um, as I recall, kind of had a sick look on her face, but she wears her her feelings on her face anyway. So I, I didn't really think anything of it um, at the time. Um, and then as soon as I got my results, when I was still in the phase of thinking that perhaps my Italian grandparents were Jewish, I, I messaged her in my um, in my excitement of discovery and shock to say that maybe she should take the test too, because uh, she might therefore show uh, some Jewish. And she just kind of sent me the little thumbs up sign because I think she realized what, what had happened and what was going on. So um, when I, when she came over in the morning, um, she was, she was well aware of what was, what was about to happen. And um, I, uh, she sat down and I, I said, you know, so mommy, what's, what's going on? And um, I said, he's, he's not my father, is he? And uh, she started crying. And I said, what, who, what, what happened? Uh, You know, what, what's going on? Why didn't you tell me just so many, so many questions, you know, all the questions that kind of start to to come into your mind. And she said that, um, she said, daddy couldn't have children. uh, So we used a donor. And that, that's the moment where, because it was actually confirmed, it was actually said out loud. um, The story was cemented. And that is the moment where everything really um, crumbles. And you you realize that uh, half of who you are is a complete um, secret. Um, I looked over at my daughter. My daughter was uh, 19 months old uh, when I found out. And she was playing in the corner of the room uh, when my mom said that. And I, I looked over at my daughter and immediately I was like, what did I pass down to her? Just, I mean, completely um, sick, sick feeling. And I immediately, I, you know, I worked in healthcare before I had my daughter and immediately started thinking of um, what, what on earth was in my body and what, um, what predispositions I didn't know I had. I was about to turn 35. And really that was one of the first things I, I said to my mom was, you know, okay, this, this man is, is Jewish you know, the, the cancers that run in certain Ashkenazi families, the, the BRCA gene, the ovarian cancers, um, you know, Tay-Sachs. I mean, that was one of the first things I said to my mom was like, how could you not tell me I'm 35 years old. I, this man could, all his sisters could have died of breast cancer at 35. And here I am not knowing that I have a risk factor, not, you know, I could have been having mammograms for the last five years. If I was at risk, how could you put me at risk like this? Mm -hmm. Um, and I wasn't mad yet at that point. 
it was more like a, a shock and and a, and a frustration and a disbelief at how how she could know this information about me um, and not not disclose it to me. Um, and so I started to to question her about you know who it, who it was or who knew, um, and it turned out it was purely a secret between her and my my dad. I used the word dad for the man who raised me. Um, so it was purely between her and my dad. Um, none of my grandparents knew. Um, neither my my mother's parents, who were biological to me, or my my paternal grandparents, who were not biological to me. Um, none of them knew, no family, no friends, just the two of them and the doctor with this, this huge secret for 35 years. Um, and so I, I also started to, to feel really sad for her at that point, because I could see as soon as she told me the weight was like, there was a weight, a visible weight kind of lifted off of her, even though she was hysterically crying. I could see the, the weight of like, oh, I've told her. Um, and so I felt really sad, like that, why did you feel like you had to keep this in for, for so long? Um, and, and it was just such a, such a mess of, of, of feelings in that moment. And there were one of the things that she said to me in that moment, um, and this, this whole conversation was, you know, in the span of maybe 15 minutes before I, I, I had to leave and go to my appointment. Um, one of the things she said to me kind of through her tears was that she always thought I was Jewish and kept understand I was, I was conceived and born in 1982. And at that time, and in my circumstance, um, sperm donation was, it was seriously like an underground, like it, it almost strikes me as like an illegal ring. I think one of my half brothers called the the lead doctor like the dealer. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, it was it was extremely secretive. Um, you know, it was not. There were no records kept. There was apparently nothing written on my mother's chart that this had occurred. Um, she received no paperwork that anything had happened. No, nothing, nothing. So she had, the doctors chose the donors from their buddies. Um, there, there was no, um, choice. The parents had no choice. So, um, people who are using donors now may think this, but this, this is how things operated, you know, until, until the nineties really, um, and so my mom and my dad had absolutely no idea what, what my other half was, no idea who, no idea what, what ethnicity or anything. So when my mom kind of told me that she suspected for 35 years that I was Jewish, um, it was a very big shock. And it's, it's been one of the kind of most troubling things um, about this for me, because one of the biggest points of my discovery has been, um, finding this, this other ethnic half of me. Um, and I use the term, um, that I've, I've learned from the adoptee community, which is trans-ethnic. Um, it's, it's similar to, to transracial, which people know transracial adoptees are, you know, raised in a different, um, by a family of a different race than they are. And trans-ethnic is when you, you know, your racial 
characteristics kind of fit in with the family that you're in, but truthfully, you're, you belong to a a culture that's very, very different. Mm -hmm. Um, and so I, I have felt very, um, passionate about the, the right to, to culture and to ethnicity and to, um, to know those things about ourselves. So, um, to me, having learned so much in the last three years about Judaism, about the Jewish experience in America, about anti-Semitism, um, reflecting back on my mother's words is, is extremely troubling to me. Um, because while I know my family, especially my grandfather, my Italian grandfather loved, loved Jewish people. Um, while I know that there was that esteem there, um, I, I felt, um, stereotyped. I felt judged. I felt, um, like, what is it about me that stands out to you as, as Jew, um, in that moment? And it, it, it feels like a singling out. It feels like you've got this, this, um, target on you somehow of, um, being different or being, um, being stereotypical, being, um, a way that's obvious that other people can tell what you are. Um, and to have that from my own mother, um, is extremely, uh, disturbing, <laughs> disturbing, yeah. uh, extremely, um, it, it, it broke down a lot of, a lot of trust, um, there from, from someone who, who was my best friend, you know, consistently for, for the first 35 years of my life, um, to know that there'd been so much kind of behind the scenes judgment of me or guessing about me. Um, so many things that they knew about me that I didn't know about myself that really dehumanizing. Um, so a lot of my, a lot of my, um, respect was lost for, for my parents and that, but, um, the other thing that my mother brought up during this short discussion when I found out was that um, her doctor, one of the days that she was inseminated, had told her that he had just driven in from Long Island with this sperm sample. So my parents uh, were in Westchester County, New York, which is right, right, um, right shares a border with New York City. And, um, so that was really the only thing I had to go on was, okay, Long Island and possible doctor, um, because she said they were, they were, they said they were using, uh, doctors and, and medical students, which, um, a lot of people were told in that, in that day and age, but it turned out to oftentimes not be true. But in my case, it was true. It was a a friend, you know, one of the doctor friends of, of my mother's doctor, Um, so I was able to put, put all the pieces together. I looked at my half sibling match later that day and Googled her, her last name and found, um, several doctors on Long Island, Mm -hmm. uh, with that last name. So, uh, yeah, it's, I was able to, um, find find him very easily because I messaged my, my half sister and, um, kind of approached her with the understanding that it was probably her, her, her dad who had, um, donated his sperm. And it was, it was, she was able to confirm that. And from there I, um, was able to, uh, get a little more information 
um, and eventually uh, be in contact with with my biological father. Wow. So your so the half sibling that took the twenty three and me the the half sister that took the twenty three and me test mm-hmm. she wasn't um she was not donor conceived not no, donor she conceived was, okay right she was his natural daughter from from marriage natural daughter got it yes wow. or raised raised daughter is is a term we'll we'll use too like okay. she you know raised by him yeah and so you found okay so you found out your your biological you found your biological dad pretty i mean how long did that take you a couple days it, yeah yeah once i got the the courage to message her um it was you know like 48 hours after i i got the results and um and once i um kind of was put in contact and kind of back and forth with, yeah, within within two two to three days, I, I had an idea who he was. It was it was still a couple months before I, I started emailing with him directly. Um, yeah. I I talked to his his uh, son first. He gave me some medical information, and I met him actually. Um, so just to kind of you know, I, I think it, it's it's a new experience for everybody, and nobody's really quite sure how to approach it. And I think everybody wants to like be comfortable with each other, or you know, because you're you're a stranger on a on a on a screen. You know, you share a certain percentage DNA, but you don't know one another yet. Um, mm-hmm. And yeah, so we we took that slowly a little bit, and and then I was able to to yeah within within a couple months I was in contact with my with my biological father. How I have so many questions. <laughs> okay, um, which one do I start with? How how many half siblings do you think you have? Oh, we have absolutely no idea, and that's one of the things that that kills me. Um, it's very, very hard to know. Um, he doesn't quite remember so far. There is two and a half years between my oldest sibling and myself, um, who's the the youngest of the of the donor conceived um, uh, offspring or children or mm-hmm. whatever word is the best. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so there's two and a half years at least of donations in there. Oh no. Um, yeah. And that, you know, at the time they were doing fresh, fresh donations, um, as opposed to frozen, which became more popular, um, as the eighties went on because of the AIDS epidemic. Um, I, there were several women I know in Canada and at least I, I, probably in the U S as well, who contracted HIV from donor insemination, um, because they were using fresh samples. Um, so it wasn't until the the mid eighties, uh, when it became commonplace, more commonplace to freeze sperm, um, in order to, to quarantine it too, to make sure that the, uh, donor was not HIV positive. Um, but that also kind of led to the rise of bigger, sperm banks where they could store the sperm and, you know, kind of create what it is now, which is, you know, you've got catalogs and you can go through the the different uh, donors that are available and, uh, and choose, choose who you want. Um, 
So, but yeah, at the, at the time it was, it was, you know, just, just give a sample and it was, it was used. Oh my I forget, gosh. I forget the, the initial question. <laughs> no, that was the, yeah. The, I, Oh, how many? Yes. How, how many? many? That's right. <laughs> so, so yes, yeah, so far, so far there are, are four of us. Um, and then the donor has, um, three children that he, that he raised. Um, so it's, it's a lot and we don't, we don't know how many, I mean, there are some sibling groups that are, you know, 20, 50. I mean, there are, once you get into freezing the sperm, there are sibling groups with hundreds. Um, there's even a, a doctor, I believe in, in the UK who, you know, theorized that he might have a thousand. And this was before, before freezing, this was just a doctor who donated a sperm for, for decades. Um, Oh my gosh. So we have, we have no idea. I'm, I'm guessing probably at least a, a couple dozen. Um, and the only way to find them is, is if they DNA test. And just think of how many people never, I mean, just in my own life that never take a 23andMe or an Ancestry, you know, never spit in the tube and take a DNA test. You would, you would never know. And you would never know. No. And yeah. and some people are even some older donor can see people from the, the generation prior to, to my generation. Um, I'm getting older too. I shouldn't say older. But, you are not. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but they're, they're finding out because their children are taking DNA tests and finding out, oh. you know, so these are the grandchildren of donors who are now, you know, in their twenties or thirties and taking DNA tests because, you know, it, it's a misconception that, um, this is a new technology. Um, this is not a new technology and it was not insanely expensive, um, decades ago, you know, yeah. um, like it is now. Uh, my mom paid a hundred dollars per insemination. Really? <laughs> Which was, I mean, you know, not that that's pocket change even in, in 1982, but, or even now really, but um, you know, now people spend thousands and thousands of dollars, you know, mm -hmm. per vial. Mm -hmm. um, so it was, it was not, it was not a, a pricey, pricey thing. It was. Um, and so, you know, people, people were doing it, especially since after, after World War II, it was pioneered, I believe in like the 1880s as a kind of experimental thing. They actually knocked the woman out and didn't tell her that they inseminated her with, with someone else's sperm. And, um, wow. yeah, she, she didn't know, and it, you know, it was written about and, oh, it was, yeah, it was not, not, not ethical at all. And, 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 you know, as, as the 20th century went on, um, practices really kind of didn't really advance much. It was usually, um, either the doctor himself, um, which we call like fertility fraud is, is what they're, they're calling it now. Yeah. And, um, or it was the doctor using other, other doctors, um, or people in the clinic, you know, sometimes, sometimes it was a janitor or who, who knows. Um, but, there was a lot of um, just secrecy, very shady. Um, you know, also there were men who were going in for, um, to have their own children. 
and giving sperm samples to be used either for analysis to look for, you know, look at their own sperm counts or to be used on their wives. Um, and some of those sperm samples were stolen and used on other women. Um, so those men were unwilling donors. Um, and these kind of stories sound really out there, but when you're involved in a community of donor conceived people, even if it's just a few thousand people, like these are really unfortunately common stories that shadiness went down. Um, and I wish we could say that everything is kind of resolved now, um, but it isn't in a lot of ways. Like there are things that are better, but there are things that are have gotten more complex ethically because it's become such a big industry. Um, so it's a very complicated history. Um, and there's been such a shift from secrecy because decades ago it was primarily um, heterosexual couples who were infertile. And now a lot, a big percentage of, of those who use donors are, or especially sperm donors are lesbian couples or single, single women who'd like to conceive and be, be mothers. And for those groups, it's a lot, uh, a lot more difficult to keep the secret. Um, and although some have tried, believe me, there, there are people who, who were raised by single women who were told a different story and didn't learn until later that it was a donor or who knows it's, it's, it's crazy, but, um, we really have the, the lesbian community to thank for kind of opening up the, the blinds and, and not allowing, um, secrecy it just kind of became more and more common to, um, to tell the kids their story and not as kind of a shameful, um, feeling in society around, around the idea of, of sperm donors or needing to use one. Um, so that's been a huge, huge, uh, thing for, for the community is, is having more visibility, less shame. Um, and also, you know, the talking more, especially about male infertility, um, that was a huge, huge issue for, you know, for my family and also for so many other families, especially those that kept secrets, mm -hmm. um, was not wanting to disclose or tell anyone that, that a man was, was infertile. Mm -hmm. And the problem there is, is, is so much that the man is not able to ever really truthfully deal with his feelings around infertility because it's never discussed. It's, 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 it's donor conception was, and truthfully still is today used as really like a band-aid for infertility, you know, mm -hmm. using, using a donor doesn't cure infertility mm -hmm. um, at all. It's, it's having a baby with another person who is fertile really and truthfully. Um, so a lot of times parents don't really fully deal with their own feelings around infertility, whether it's the infertile partner themselves or whether it's their partner who's also grieving the idea of having a child with the person that they love. Um, and so that's a big, um, a big issue and a big concern and a big thing that we're trying to push with um, the mental health community as well. Um, 
psychologists who deal with infertility um, to make sure that they, um, oh, here we go. We've got the music playing. <laughs> there it is again. Your awesome Santa, clock. Santa Claus is coming. <laughs> Your Christmas clock. I love it. Yes. <laughs> so I'll wait till that's finished. But <laughs> of course, this is the longest song. No, that that's fine. Well, it's it's totally fine if it's in there. It happens. <laughs> but no, what you're what you're saying is something I hadn't thought about. It's like the the men because they're having their own issues with their infertility or their low sperm count or whatever, their own shame about that. They'll be willing to hide their their child's their future child's half their parentage, their parentage. Yes. And it becomes what we like. Yes, exactly. And that's what we we refer to it as like passing down the pain. Mm -hmm. Um, And in kind of with a more, the typical kind of NPE experience, if there was an affair, you might, it it might be a similar analogy to the mother's infidelity secret, you know, where she never dealt with the shame around the infidelity. And so it's now the child's job to deal with, you know, taking care of everybody's feelings around that. And for us, it's a little bit of the opposite where it's, I mean, assuming it's a, it's a a different father, which is more common. um, You know, we're tiptoeing around the feelings that were never dealt with around infertility um, and around raising someone else's child Mm. or um, any of that, because they're not, if, if, if it's a secret, they're not able to, deal with any of the uh, issues that that would come up for for donor conceived people you know there's no you know any any concerns about bonding any concerns about attachment any anything is 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 not dealt with and so then it becomes our burden to deal with it all mm-hmm. um, and it's it's very very tricky and it ends up um, putting a lot of stress on the family as well because it's um, it's not healthy. It's not healthy. Secrecy not. Is, is, is not healthy. It's Never not healthy. And I think what, what kind of sets us apart in some ways um, from the, from some of the other NPE communities is the feeling that this was done to us on purpose. Um, whereas with so many cases, perhaps it was an affair or one night stand and maybe the intention was not to get pregnant. By this other person and then when it happened well then you have to cover for it with us it was like a premeditated like plan to put this all into motion and it's so hurtful it's so hard to wrap your mind around that especially when it's your parents because they're like the, the first attachment that you form mm-hmm. and to have that attachment broken, um, is excruciating, but it, it, it affects all of your relationships because you're, you're destroying the foundation of your trust, the foundation of your ability to see the world accurately, and you're just completely destroying it. And when you destroy that, it destroys your ability to, to connect with, with anyone. Um, you've had something ripped from you and it's, because it's kind of both your parents kind of conspiring and it's, it's very difficult and they each have their own place within, within the lie. You know, there are some times where I, I felt 
more empathy with my dad for for what he went through and for feeling the way he did and and felt more like it was my mother, you know, um, who kind of did more of the lying. And other times I feel more mad at at him um, for not dealing with with his feelings um, and for in my personal case, he's a very angry person and took out a lot of his anger and frustration with, with the secret coming out on me. Um, so yeah, it's just, it's a very complicated world and it, it, you know, it, it adds some different complications than, than some other MPE stories do. It, it really does. I'm, I'm learning so much more now about, the children's rights and the ethical nature and how there's no regulation. And um, I'm just learning a lot and I, you're explaining it so well, but I, I did want to ask about, well, there's so, I have so many questions, but I did, you did just mention your, your dad and how he treated you and his blame and, or he mistreated you really. Is that Mm -hmm. something that you wanted to get into today or would you prefer to skip over it? (laughs) It's it's hard. I mean, I'll just, I'll, I'll give what, you know, I was able to talk to my dad one time about this and probably the only time I'll ever really discuss it with him. I, I wanted to make sure that he knew how much I loved him and how much he would be my only daddy, nobody else's daddy. Um, you know, nobody else is the man I, I, I'm, I'm still, when I found this out, I I wanted a hug from my dad. I wanted a hug to tell, tell me, um, you know, that he still loved me. And I never got that hug because even, even the hugs that we've had since then, or the hug after we spoke was not, not the kind of hug that I needed. It was not the, oh my God, I still love you. You're still my daughter. Um, you know, his, his, his mantra when we spoke was, it wasn't a lie because you weren't supposed to find out. That was the mantra. Um, and just kept telling himself that and telling me that, and, you know, asking me why, why I had to think about being Jewish every day. You know, he didn't didn't think about being Dutch every day. So why did I have to think about being Jewish every day? I've only known for a few months. So, you know, at that, at that point, and, um, it's, it's very complicated and it, 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 it made me feel even more adamant that he had literally never dealt with any of his feelings. He, he showed me so little empathy for being his daughter. Like literally his, his daughter was sitting right in front of him, his daughter in like every way, except biologically was sitting right there in front of him. And he could muster up so little empathy for how hard this was for me. Um, whereas I was asking him about his struggle and trying to empathize. And really the only emotion he showed was for his own, his own grief. And, you know, I even apologized to him. I apologized to him for not being able to be a person in whom he could see his own face reflected. So here I am, the child in the relationship apologizing someone who accidentally found out this decades long secret apologizing and protecting the feelings of, of my dad. Um, 
And the more, the more we do that, the heart, the longer I think it takes for us to work on ourselves um, and to heal ourselves because we're the ones who are so deeply, deeply hurt um, by this, by, especially in, in my case, by people who, who did it intentionally to me under, you know, under, under, under not the best advice, you know, I don't, I don't blame them for not telling me, um, as a small child, you know, now, now we recommend even talking, talking to your baby bump and telling, because Mm -hmm. really the more you tell the story, the less emotional it gets. Um, so if you start talking even before your baby's born, like your baby will always know the story and always be comfortable and you'll be comfortable telling it. Um, so, you know, I don't blame my parents for not doing that. I, you know, I, I blame them for, um, once it became important, once I started to, to grow up knowing the time period that they were from, my dad even mentioned that had they adopted a child, they probably would have told the child around like 12 or so. And so that blew my mind because it was just different expectations for me that I, I would never be told, even though it was virtually half, half adopted. So, um, that to me was, was what bothered me, um, you know, empathizing with them for the time period they lived in while also realizing that, um, they had many chances and my mother knew it was, she knew, she knew, she really, she really felt guilty for 35 years and it showed. Mm -hmm. And when I look back on, on her and her personality and stuff, I realized how damaged she became, um, and how damaged, how damaged both my parents became just holding on to the secret, um, between the two of them and how much it was really, you know, learning the terms and kind of the, the experiences really like a trauma bond between them because they were not like, it was so, it, it was very disturbing to, to find that out that this is really kind of what held them together and held their marriage together and held the family together mm-hmm. was like the secret. <laughs> And, and they it made was, it this sick, shameful secret, and it never had to be. Right, right. And now that burden is on me, yes. you know, to sort it out, to sort out that shame about who I am, about my own life, and to kind of, it's already such a such a strange experience because it, it feels very much because there, and I think this is so hard for some people to understand, but it's it's an exchange of money for your identity. Mm. You know, my mom paid the doctor a hundred dollars. He gave my biological father 35 bucks. And for that small amount of money, my entire identity was just erased, you know, half of my lineage half of who i was just changed and that is the most bizarre thing to wrap your mind around for such a and and especially for for those of us who are from that generation where it was it was it was a small amount of money like that where you're thinking my goodness 35 dollars like i lost my cultural and religious identity for 35 dollars like, like this was done to me on purpose and it just blows my mind. It, it, it was, it was an emotion. I, I don't know 
that it's possible to like convey. And it's so, it's so violating. It's just so violating. Mm -hmm. Oh, and I bet there's so many people that can't wrap their head around or empathize or understand no matter how hard they try. As an NPE, I can get it to a point. I can listen to you and I'm nodding along and there's still so much I haven't, especially this, this, this fact that the the parents, their very first choice, uh, I said that wrong. The very first decision they make as a parent is one of a self-centered choice. What is, what do they want? Not what is in the best interest of this child. Right. Exactly. And that is setting up for a lifetime of decisions that are not in the child's best interests. Exactly. Exactly. There's so many times like you have these flashbacks as you go through the experience of things that happened earlier in your life and, you know, kind of these, these, these memories coming back to me of times sitting in a doctor's office and my parents lying, lying. And, and as, as the years have gone by, I've kind of had those return and had to deal with them and deal with the grief um, bit by bit, deal with each memory kind of as it comes. I mean, I even had like, I even had these kind of vivid flashbacks to my own mother being inseminated, um, even though that wasn't me, but I just, I had this like really sick, violated feeling and it was hard for me to go to the doctor. It was like, I like, it, it's one of the big reasons why I haven't, why I probably am not going to have another child. I, it, I, I loved being pregnant. I loved my pregnancy. I love being a mom. And yet uh, some of that magic, like even my doctor would always be like, I love it when you come in, you're so excited about this. You're so like, you love being pregnant. Other people are all like upset about it. Like not saying my pregnancy was perfect or anything, but yeah, even, even the hardships were beautiful to me because of, (laughs) because of the result, you know, but like it took that beauty away and it took the, you know what else it took away from me was, and I I think maybe other NPEs can feel this too, that feeling of, especially because I found out as a new mother and that feeling of absolute love that you have when you have a child. And for me, some of that was taken away. I, I looked to that feeling sometimes when I was feeling bad about myself, you know, you, you look to that feeling of, of, well, your parents love you, you know, even if you feel like no one else does in this world or, or my parents um, care. And it, it really, I, I started thinking about the, the worries that my mom must've had, like being pregnant with a stranger's child, mm-hmm. having no idea who it was, no idea what this child would look like, if it would be obvious. I mean, there are all kinds of stories of sperm mix-ups and the child comes out biracial and everybody's, you know, the cover is blown. And every, I mean, you know, and I'm, I'm starting to, you know, I, I was thinking of all these possibilities that would have run through my mom's head, just not knowing anything about, about this person and almost like, wondering about me or suspicious of me. I, I don't know. I just, all these feelings that I had just turned me off so much to, to 
feeling connected to the the idea of motherhood. And so this 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 experience just has so many like f- much farther reaching consequences to to the rest of our lives than than people might think. You know, the the health information again was was huge for me and and once I once I found that out, it was it was a big um a big blessing to be able to give a doctor the correct health information for the first time. And, you know, my mother swore up and down that they never lied to the doctors when they did. And when uh, there were times that my medical treatment was based on conditions that my dad had or conditions or the treatment, the treatment that worked for my dad, there were a couple specific incidences that I, you know, know throughout my life where my dad's medical history played a big part in how I was, um, how I was treated or what I was tested for. Mm-hmm. Um, and there was one, you know, one case where it actually made a big difference. And I, I could have, I, I truthfully could have lost my life that, but, um, you know, but I was told, no, we never lied about your medical history. So that wipes, wipes it all clean. I shouldn't be upset. Right. <laughs> the, the the very fact that your parents never told anyone, um, I think says a lot about them. And I, I'm going to guess your father might be a keeper of, a, I mean, both of them are secret keepers, but I'm just picking up on the fact that your, your father is really, really a, for this secret. Um, but how, how they couldn't even tell their own parents or best friends or siblings just shows, shows, I feel like everyone has a secret, but they usually tell someone in their life, maybe a couple. Very right. Wow. Okay. And that's the, one of the biggest griefs I have is for my grandparents too, quite frankly, all six of them, because my, my biological paternal grandparents who I will never know, they've passed away. Um, my dad's parents who will never know that I was, I was not related to them. And, and that, that kills me. I feel, I feel so bad. I just feel so bad for them. I feel so bad. And, and my mom's parents, I feel bad in, in a different way, even though we are still, still biologically connected. Um, my mom and, and her mom were, um, inseparable best friends told each other everything. I mean, talked on the phone every day. They knew what they each ate for every meal. They knew each other's bathroom habits. I mean, everything, <laughs> everything. Yes. Oh, and I, and, and that was similar to the relationship I had with my mom as well. And the grief and the disgust I have, and and after this came out, I found there were some other family secrets, not from my, my parents, but elsewhere in the immediate family. And, and I just felt completely disgusted and, and betrayed on behalf of my grandparents as well, because I, I could not imagine telling such, I mean, I still feel bad the time I lied to my parents when I was 12 and rode my bike instead of riding my bike with my girlfriend, I went and went to the playground with a boy. Mm-hmm. Like that is like the biggest lie of my life that I've told my parents. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I can, you know, and I, I, I could not imagine how how you could live with yourself for lying to your parents no. even about such a big thing. And it no. just, I, I spent so many, so many days crying over all these things, over grieving over siblings I'll never meet, grieving over, over siblings who may not be alive anymore, grieving over my grandparents, just everything. Um, everything takes like months, every 
aspect of this takes months to process and deal with. So you're talking about this, the recovery from this is, is just lifelong in a sense. You're always remembering new things of, of why this new truth makes sense. You're always remembering events from your childhood that kind of shed light on the truth, because even, you know, for me, where this was unexpected, um, to a large extent. I remember people saying early on, like, oh yeah, now that I think about it, it makes sense. It makes sense. And I thought, no, no, I was really shocked. It didn't make sense. But that was, you know, within the first few weeks, but now three years out, I mean, there are so many things that, that make so much more sense and so many things where, um, I, I recognize what happened earlier in my life, uh, feelings I had, um, feeling very isolated, very disconnected, very strange, um, very wrong, um, very much like I shouldn't be alive somehow and connecting it to, to some of this and, you know, meeting my, my biological father and learning a little bit more about, about that side of me and realizing how much of myself comes from, from this man and from his genes, um, how much of my appearance, how much of my personality, how much of my heart, really, I, I, it's hard to explain, but when you meet somebody who is that, um, closely related to you, there is almost like an understanding of each other's thoughts and understanding of each other's, of, of each other's thought processes too. Um, and just of, of, imagining their emotions and you just have this like secure sense that you understand and, and that they understand you. And it's, it's, it's very much like meeting, um, meeting yourself and, and gaining so much understanding of, of why you are the way you are. And to me, that's understanding that everybody should have access to, um, that, no matter, um, you know, who your family of origin is that, that everyone should be able to have access to, um, to their, their other, you know, biological parent or parents in the case of double donors or embryo donors, um, to know who they are. We, you know, we've, we've learned from adoptees. We know this has been going on for so long with adoptees and they've done so much hard work, toward the the right to identity um you know and we pointed out in the the united nations have even you know set forth their their guide for children's rights you know one of them is to to identity and to to know who who you are to know your parents to know your families um and you can you know there's so many different beautiful family structures in this world um so many non-traditional families and like what we're realizing is that like the less traditional, the better, you know, anybody you can live with any group of family and then, but knowing, knowing and having access to um, other parts of your family tree is just so key for, for building a sense of, of who we are and why we are the way we are. Um, yeah. Cassandra, I'm going to have so many more questions. And so at this point, uh, because I have another appointment in a couple minutes, I'm going to wrap it up. But I know people are going to have questions for you as well. So can they get in touch with you? And if so, how? 
Yes, I am on Facebook. Um, my name is Cassandra Adams. Um, you can search for me and you can send me a message and friend request and explain who you are. I'm also on Instagram, Cassandra J. Adams, and Twitter as well with that same handle. Um, you can request to, to follow and and kind of follow along. I'm, I'm public with a lot of my uh, journey. Um and and welcome, especially anyone who I'm kind of a magnet on the internet for anybody who finds out that they're Jewish. So that's kind of that's that's become one of my specialties as well is is that area of, of finding identity. So any any surprises in, of that nature, please feel free to to reach out to me or also uh, Cassandra J Adams at yahoo.com is my email. And um, I am available. I'm always willing to listen if anybody is uh, hurting. Um, yeah, I don't want anybody to feel like they're alone in this because um, we all feel that way too much as it is, even when we have the community surrounding us. Thank you so much, Cassandra. I really appreciate this. This was eye-opening today. Thank you. Thanks again to Cassandra for sharing today. These stories are here for us to identify with. If you are an NPE and would like to share your story, email npestories at gmail.com. You do not have to give any identifying information. If you are an NPE and would like to share your story, I'd like to hear from you. Subscribe to this podcast to hear more. Come heal with us.